It feels like a hole that Italy just can't plug. The daily loss of hundreds of lives. Coronavirus fatalities in this country of 60 million people now higher than in China, with a population of one and a half billion. It's brought one of the world's best healthcare systems to its knees. This is the Frontline Dispatch. I'm Rainey Aronson, executive producer of Frontline. Across Europe, it's been another day of grim statistics and images as the virus spreads. More than 100,000 people are infected uh, right across the continent. Life in Europe has changed almost beyond recognition in just a matter of days. And nowhere is this more the case than in Italy. A country in complete lockdown, streets deserted, overwhelmed health workers battling to save lives. For Americans watching, it's hard not to wonder whether we're peering into a similar future. It's my story, it's your story, it feels really, really close to home. And I feel, as, as an Italian right now, I feel like there's no other place I, I'd want to be. That's journalist and producer Sasha Achille. Right now she's filming for us in northern Italy, which has just become the global epicenter of the pandemic. Sasha was born and raised there, so what's unfolding has become a personal story for her. In 2014, she was part of the team that led our investigation into the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. And the question she raised then about our preparedness for the next big disease outbreak are now more relevant than ever. The Frontline Dispatch is made possible by the Abrams Foundation, committed to excellence in journalism and by the WGBH Catalyst Fund. Yeah, hi, Rainy. Sasha, it's so good to hear your voice. How are you? I'm okay. Um, Yeah, it's been really strange. (laughs) Very emotional. Yeah, tell me a little bit about how it is there. I know this is a personal story for you as well. Yeah, so as we were planning this filming trip, the borders of Europe just started closing down and Italy had already been on lockdown but just a few days before it seemed much easier to fly in because some of the airports in Lombardy were still open to fly uh, through Germany so from London there were still flights going through Germany to the north of Italy and the night before um, I was due to travel um, although the airports in the north closed down and so the flights were all cancelled. So all of a sudden, the country that normally takes me two hours to get to, to come and see my family, um, was it was going to take me basically a day and a half to get to my destination, which is um, Cremona up in Lombardy. And landing in Rome was quite surreal, Rainy. Um, Tell me about that. So yeah, I landed in Rome and there were, there were taxis running. Um, so I took a taxi to a hotel that had been booked for me near Central Station. And we were driving at 7 p.m., which is normally rush hour. I mean, it's always rush hour in Rome. It's hectic, it's full of traffic, it's loud. Romans are known for being really, really loud. <laughs> and it was so sad to be driving through the streets of Rome and just very, very few cars, very, very few people, everything closed. It was just like a bad dream. I guess when you landed, did you wonder what was going to meet you 
when you actually made it to the place you were going in terms of the clinic. Can you talk a little bit about just emotionally preparing yourself for what was to come? Normally, you know, I've worked in various countries, in various either conflict zones or during the Ebola outbreak. And before deploying on a shoot, there's always a sense of nervousness because you just never know what to expect, but also a sense of excitement. And in a way, when you're going to a completely foreign place, you do feel like an observer um, and so, so that sense of excitement kind of prepares you emotionally for the situation and the place you're going to. I can't say I felt excited at all about coming here. Um, I feel really compelled to, I feel like it's important. I've never actually filmed in Italy. The stories I've done have always been elsewhere. I've never actually made a story about my country and all I knew was what my family was telling me about like everyday life. Um, but it was kind of hard to believe. And then, you know, landing in Rome was the first kind of shocking impact. And I, I had a good cry as soon as I arrived to the hotel. It's just so close to home. And knowing that, you know, leaving London as in the time that Europe was closing its borders, in the time that uh, the British government had just, you know, started taking action to close things, you know, close schools or tell people not to go outside too much and avoid, you know, and, and kind of engage in social distancing. So landing in Italy was like landing in, in the future for the other countries. I, I want to talk a little bit about the clinic and why this clinic and, and just paint a picture for what you're seeing there and experiencing. Yeah, so I came across this um, hospital because about a week ago, um, a photograph went viral and it, it showed um, a nurse who had completely out of exhaustion kind of collapsed over her computer um, and it was this very powerful image that was circulating and it went viral. Um, and I found out who who the doctor was who took that photograph, who's a woman called Francesca Mangiatordi. And she works in the emergency um, ward of that hospital. And, um, and she took that photo and I managed to find her contact got in touch with her and it turns out that she's working in this hospital which is in one of the towns in the epicenter of the outbreak in Italy and it was the second town that had been very badly hit from the beginning of the Italian outbreak and so she's a month into the outbreak in, in this town. Sasha, do you know in circumstances like that how doctors like the one that you're following, how are they making decisions about who they treat and who do they turn away? Well, so I've spoken to Francesca about it and Italy has a, a, has a, a public health care system which is free to the people and the policy is that no matter what age you are, you will get the same treatment and level of care to anybody else. And it's a country with a very old population. And 
And all of a sudden, the doctors who are used to providing healthcare for everyone, no matter who you are, are now having to make decisions like choosing the 35-year-old who's in a critical condition over the 80-year-old. And it is really difficult because it's just not... She, You know, Francesca said this to me. She said, we have been taught to give the same level of care for the 94-year-old. You keep them alive no matter what. And I remember when my grandmother was six at the age of 96, the doctors were doing everything to keep her alive. You know, that's the culture. And, and now they're having to make decisions. You know, if you have a younger person who's ill, then they will give... The ve- a ventilator to the younger person over the older person. So when you're in the clinic, are you seeing this actually happen? Um, so we haven't um, managed to film in the triage section yet, but she's spoken to us about it. And we're in obviously the emergency unit with her. So she receives critical cases and the critical cases tend to be older. So, you know, when we were filming with her yesterday, A lot of the patients in her clinic, in her area, were elderly, but there is a rise in cases of of younger people. Um, And in the intensive care unit, we've heard of a 35-year-old and a 21-year-old who've been admitted to intensive care. So you're inside the clinic. What are you filming and, and who are you seeing as they're coming through? We're seeing hallways with patients the doctors are struggling to figure out where to put them. We're seeing older people who are mostly hooked up to ventilators, who are still conscious, but they're struggling to breathe. And doctors that are completely overwhelmed. And also there used to be 11 of them in the unit. And now there's five of them because six of the nurses and doctors have all um, fallen ill or are being currently being tested because they have fevers and symptoms. How are they protecting themselves? Do they have enough protective equipment? They have enough protective equipment at the moment and they wear, you know, they're completely hooded from head to toe. Um, They're constantly changing their gloves and sanitizing and doing everything they can to keep themselves clean and protected at all times. But the problem is when you're dealing with so many cases coming in, 12-hour shifts, double shifts... Um, you know, it's easy to, to make mistakes. You do what you can. I mean, what's so horrible about COVID is that it's not just physical contact, it's contact with surfaces that have been touched. And, you know, and the problem they're dealing with is it's still a hospital, it's still an emergency centre. You'll have people coming in for other problems who, as soon, if they get admitted, risk getting the disease. Right. I mean, that's something that we're seeing across the world, that people are still getting sick. Sasha, tell me a little bit about, and of course, we're seeing pictures of you in your own gear, and we have protocols in place from Frontline, but I really would love to hear, how are you protecting yourself? In our hotel and on the streets, as soon as we're outside of our rooms, we have to wear masks and gloves. Um, we are using hand sanitizer on our gloves continuously, on our hands continuously. We're changing our gloves continuously and the masks. In the hospital, we're dressing exactly like the doctors and nurses are. So we've been given headgear. Mm -hmm. We don't film using our own clothing. We've been given 
other clothing and basically a plastic cloth that we're wearing and covers for our shoes. You know, it's a deeply uncomfortable way of of working and we're constantly um, sanitizing the equipment. Right. And and do you feel that you are safe yourselves? Are you concerned? I feel as safe as I can be. I'm not scared, but I'm fully aware of the possibility of being infected. I was thinking a lot about your reporting and the work that you did for us in West Africa during the Ebola crisis, and that work was so extraordinary. Can you talk a bit about the differences and just your your observations on how Italy's dealing with this versus West Africa? You know, everybody keeps asking me, why Italy? Why has it got so bad in Italy? Why is it that two days ago... Italy surpassed China in the number of deaths. And I don't really have an answer for that, but the assumption I can make is that the disease, the virus was circulating in Italy way before it was ever detected. And that feels really familiar to what happened in Sierra Leone. Mm, Interesting. Yeah, epidemiologists here haven't been able to, at least as far as we know from what's been released in the public, is they haven't been able to trace down patient zero in Italy. And the difference is that there are many people who are asymptomatic, who can be spreaders but don't have symptoms. And that is what's so different and terrifying about this virus versus Ebola. With Ebola, it was almost easier to trace contacts and isolate people once there was a recognition. Right, you could see it, right? You could actually see what was going on. Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, obviously we're looking in on Italy from afar right now. The stories are really terrifying. Is it actually like a real portrayal of what's going on? Yeah, I think you have... There's different different aspects that are terrifying, as I described, you know, arriving in a in a in a completely deserted Rome. There's the reality that people right now in Italy are in lockdown. A lot of towns and cities are run and controlled by the military. There are police everywhere. To go out, there has to be a justification. You have to have a self-declaration paper justifying why you are outside. The only reasons you're allowed to go outside is either for work, from a medical emergency, or to return to your residence, or to buy groceries. And you have to be doing one of those things. Have people broken that? Yes, and there are people who've been criminally charged. I wanted to ask if you could look at Italy, and then you're looking at the U.S. as we're starting to see growing cases What is the advice you're hearing from the doctors to those of us who are living in America? They're saying, get ready. You know, watching the American response, watching the British response, watching the European response, they're all saying that's that's how we reacted initially. Initially, it was like, don't go to restaurants and don't go to pubs and try to isolate yourself as much as possible, but it wasn't enforced. Um, so at the beginning, it was all quite casual. And then and that just gave opportunity for the virus to spread and spread and spread. And the doctors are saying, absolutely self-isolate and do it in the interest of yourself, but in the interest of everybody else around you and who you love, because this is very, very real. And 
to prepare. Right, right. Don't ignore this, right, and prepare. The Italians have come to the decision that it's it's it requires extreme measures to try and control this. So it's just better as citizens that we just take it ourselves and do it and and self isolate and stay at home. Sasha, I assume that one of the hardest things is to be in northern Italy and not be able to be with your family. Can you talk a little bit about that? And and, um, I assume you're not going to go and see them after this is over. No. So my movements here are restricted. I can be here because I am here as a journalist and I'm working and I can be here because um, I'm an Italian citizen. So they couldn't push, turn me away at the airport. However, um, because I'm no longer resident here, I'm resident in the UK, I have to return to the UK after five days and go into 14 days isolation. Uh, So obviously my time here is limited and I won't be able to see my family, but even so, like I'm working in a highly infectious uh, place inside a hospital and it would be deeply irresponsible of me to go see my aunts and my father and my mother who's you know, 70, so technically in the higher risk category. Right, right. And my sister said, yeah, I don't know when I'll see you again. And that's very true. Sasha, what is the hardest part of covering this story for you as an Italian, but also as a journalist? It feels, um, it feels like I'm... You know, with every story, I'm I am in a way living the story, but I'm a I'm a also a, an outsider and I'm an observer. This feels it's 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 my story, it's your story. It feels really really close to home, and I. But I also, you know, I feel as as an Italian right now, I feel like there's no other place I I'd want to be. Um, I never thought that I would be making a film like this in Italy and I feel immensely proud of the way the Italian doctors are doing everything they can um and I feel really proud of that it feels it feels important um and you know I told my family I'm coming and they weren't very pleased but they also understood why this is exactly where I need to be right now well, we can't thank you enough for being there and for witnessing what's going on in both, you know, Italy, but also your your home country. Um, we'll be talking throughout your, your time there. And thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Rainy. Take good care. Thank you, you too. Find more of our reporting on the global coronavirus pandemic online at frontline.org. This podcast was produced by Max Green and James Edwards. Dan Edge is Frontline Senior Producer, Sarah Childress is our Senior Editor, and Andrew Metz is Frontline's Managing Editor. I'm Rainey Aronson, Frontline's Executive Producer. The Frontline Dispatch is produced at WGBH and powered by PRX. Stay tuned to our Covering Coronavirus series in the coming weeks.